Hey there, and welcome to Truth Be Told, a theology and apologetics podcast not claiming to have all of the answers, but created to analytically look at the truth contained in the Bible and encourage critical thinking on how to apply that truth to our lives. I'm Micah Gunn, and I appreciate you listening in. No matter your level of understanding or knowledge, I sincerely hope and pray that you find these words edifying, informative, and beneficial. So let's get started. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Truth Be Told. I'm Micah Gunn, and today we're going to be talking about something a little bit controversial. And it's not because I enjoy stirring up controversy or anything, it's just, you know, when there's controversial subjects that are already in existence, sometimes those are the topics that are worth covering even more in depth because it's worth questioning both sides and seeing which truth bears itself out according to the Bible. And I originally really loved this topic. It was actually going to be the first one that I presented on this podcast, but after I got into it and studied more in depth, I realized how much variety of thought there was on this issue, how sensitive of a topic it is, and how much I didn't understand, even though I thought originally it was fairly simple and straightforward. Um, so like I said, it is, a, it is a fragile topic, so please bear with me, and any patience or grace that you could extend my way when we discuss this, I would really appreciate that. I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes or anything like that. Uh, but the topic of the day is going to be the nature of the Holy Spirit. And the reason that this is such a sensitive topic is because for so many people across denominations, it is considered common ground. And the belief on the nature of the Holy Spirit for most mainstream Christianity is that the Holy Spirit is one being in the God Trinity and is therefore God in and of itself. Well, today I'm going to be treading lightly over that common ground and trying to do so with as much sensitivity and as little condemnation as possible while still outlining the Bible's true teaching on this topic. My goal is not in any way, shape, or form to belittle someone's faith or to trample on something that unifies mainstream Christians. My goal is actually, well, as it should be for all of us, honestly, is to go to God's word on any given topic and exegete the truth from the text of scripture in order to dictate what our beliefs are. Because really common ground shouldn't be our basis for truth. Like we should always enjoy common ground. We should appreciate common ground and stand firm together on common ground. But we should always be reading and studying scripture to affirm and reaffirm beliefs in as unbiased a way as possible. And we should be ready even, even despite whatever logistical outcome might happen from, from our studies, we should be ready to get closer and closer to truth. That should be what we're striving for. And we should be ready to get closer to truth, whether that means maintaining the truth and it's something that we can reaffirm or adjusting a belief because it becomes clear through Bible study, prayer, or meditation that we don't have everything completely right 100% of the time. So I don't come at this topic even with an answer to every skeptic's question that anyone could possibly throw at me, just with what makes the most sense to me based on what the Bible says about the topic. And you might be surprised at how much common ground we actually still have left uh, at the end of this, end of all of this, even after I've kind of, like I said, treaded on it lightly. So the outline we're going to go through today is kind of going to break down like this. We'll go through the different schools of thought on the topic. What do people believe about the nature of God? 
And this is, I mean, I say nature of God, obviously the topic is the nature of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to be emphasizing that, but considering uh, many Christians believe that the Holy Spirit is God or is part of that God Trinity, um, the nature of God is a topic that's going to come up as well, even though we're simply focusing on just the Holy Spirit. After we go through the schools of thought, we're going to go to uh, the history of the Trinity, because the Trinity is what survived mostly. Not not solely, there are definitely other schools of thought, and I, I hope that we take a look at all of those. But a lot of what we're going to look at is the Trinity, because there might be some things within that teaching, or some questions that we haven't asked ourselves uh, on this topic that might um, make us go back to the text of Scripture and just see what the Bible actually says and not what we've presupposed about it. So we'll look at the Trinity, see what happened historically and where that idea comes from. And in, within this, we'll kind of be looking also at early church fathers and what they said. And then we'll go to Bible verses that people claim support the Trinity, or more importantly, support the idea that the Holy Spirit is God. And when we go through those Bible verses, we'll also try and look at um, what logical conclusions we can draw from the verses we look to. And uh, finally, we will wrap up with Bible verses that discuss the Holy Spirit so we can see whether we're Trinitarian, Unitarian, Binitarian, um, aren't really sure what our belief is on the Holy Spirit. What, what, whatever belief you have on the matter, we'll look at what the Bible says to see what our beliefs should be. And basically, this outline is going to be walking backwards through history. So I'm not going to start with the Bible, even though that is the best place to start in, in so many ways, but I'm going to be working backwards to kind of, um, get rid of some of our preconceived notions and then not rely on those so strongly. So we'll go back to the root of it and then hopefully we'll see a cumulative case for my point here as I go through. And all I ask as I go through these sections is that you do hear my cumulative case because I'm, I'm not trying to break down any belief based on one single argument alone. For example, the Trinity working in three persons. Well, three is a, a nice round number. It might feel to us like a way in which God would work. But if you are serious about believing in the Trinity, and I'm serious about reading the scripture for what it says, then any point that is concluded with, it just feels like that makes sense, cannot be reason enough. It, it just can't. This doesn't really work as evidence. It can be supporting evidence for a belief. Once you've proved something, you can say, yeah, and and this also supports that. But as we walk back through history, we have to distinguish what is supporting evidence and what is primary evidence to get rid of some of these presuppositions and allow the Bible to dictate itself rather than having our kind of post-biblical senses reason out what we think could be true. And I, I hope that's your goal today. Even if I say things that you disagree with, I hope we, um, as I always say, this podcast is not meant to tell you, here's the absolute conclusion you should come to. I do have my own thoughts on that, that I'll be sharing today, but more it's to say, here are questions that you might not have thought to ask yourself. So whether this podcast just bears out the fact that you are right in your belief, whether you are, uh, like I said, Unitarian, Binitarian, Trinitarian, or um, aren't sure about what you believe on the Holy Spirit, whatever you believe, you should be able to ask yourselves these questions and your belief should stand up to scrutiny. 
So that's, that's kind of the goal of the podcast. If you haven't listened in before, just to ask ourselves questions so we can critically think about our beliefs. So let's get started. The first section, as I said, will be the main beliefs about the nature of God or with, with emphasis on the Holy spirit that is, and I kind of already went through them, but we'll go through them in a little more depth. There's Unitarianism and there's not a ton of Unitarians in the world. Um, but there, there is a, there is a movement of them and they have churches you could probably find one in your local area. Um, basically they believe that only the father is God. They believe that Christ was a created being. Um, they have no teaching on the divinity of the Holy spirit. Um, which I think is pretty clear. I mean, I, I already have talked about the divinity of Christ in past episodes. I think John one, one showing that the word who became flesh was God and was with God already proves that, but that is what the Unitarians believe. And we won't touch on this one too much since they p focus primarily on the divinity of the father and not on the divinity of the spirit. And that's our primary topic today. If I were talking about the divinity of Christ, I would definitely go through Unitarianism, but, um, they don't really touch on the spirit that much. Then there is binitarianism, not to be confused with bitheism, which bitheism is where two beings work autonomously. And, um, Binitarian is kind of the belief that the Father and Christ are divine beings, but the Holy Spirit is not. And in Binitarianism, there is uh, what's described as a oneness and a two-ness in God, because there are two distinct beings, the Father and the Son, but there's also um, a oneness and a unity within them. Again, not um, to be confused with bitheism, where it's two beings who are autonomous and, um, kind of work together, but not as one kind of unit. And then lastly, there is Trinitarianism. And this is the most common belief. You've probably heard of it. If you have studied any form of Christianity at all, this one comes up all the time. And that is a belief that the father, the son, and the Holy spirit are three persons in one God. And like I said before, this does sound good, but we can't go off of nice round numbers to dictate truth. We have to let the text of scripture do that for us solely. So let's go through the history of Trinitarianism. Um, in 325 AD, there was a council called by Constantine, who was uh, the leader of Rome at the time. And if you're not familiar with Constantine, you should look up his history. Basically he, um, was a Roman leader who then kind of appropriated Christianity in order to consolidate power in the Roman government because Christianity was kind of, kind of causing a little bit of a stir. And he realized that using religion to, um, kind of, kind of basically he blended religion with other pagan religions at the time. And in doing this, he consolidated all the people to kind of be unified under church and state. But within Christianity, there was also a lot of infighting. And so it wasn't working as well as Constantine wanted. So in order to squash a lot of the disagreement, Constantine called this Council of Nicaea in 325 AD to kind of deal with the divisiveness happening in the church. And he called all kinds of differing beliefs together into this kind of a cage match style. And the doctrinal points that ended up quote unquote winning were the ones that were canonized or became orthodoxy. And then uh, early church fathers kind of perpetuated many of, the, many of these doctrines, 
but there was still disagreement on a lot of them, and there still is today. Now, two mistakes that are made when discussing kind of this history is that people that subscribe to the idea of the Trinity trust too much in early church councils as having preached truth when there's several things that mainstream Christianity would reject that the church councils or church fathers concluded. For example, many church fathers taught um, perpetuation of keeping the holy days or Passover. Some, um, you can you can look, there are inferences to the Sabbath that you can look at with early church fathers as well. And these are things largely rejected by mainstream Christianity. I don't believe they should be personally, but that's not the topic today. Um, but there are also many things that these early church fathers and early church councils concluded that are instantly rejected by everyone as having been polluted by Gnosticism or paganism, or some of them are accepted by very small groups of people, or at least um, very singular groups of people, like the Apocrypha is mainly adopted by the Catholic Church. The Shepherd of Hermas is uh, another apocryphal work that some in the Catholic Church don't even accept it. It's very ostracized from that group even. But also, they within themselves, these early church fathers disagreed a lot. So I don't really understand why we say that the early church fathers are some authority on this issue. They should be an interesting, um, or their text should be interesting to read as um, understanding the state of the church historically, but it shouldn't be where you get your doctrine or your proofs for your doctrine from. That to me doesn't make a lot of sense. And I think it makes sense to most people, actually. We, we don't trust uh, that Constantine was uh, in it just for the, the sheer goodness of Christianity. We think he had underlying motives. Most people would agree with that. And yet the councils that he called, or the early church fathers that um, went after that council, we say, yeah, well, they were teaching truth. That doesn't make sense to me. So that's one mistake that's made. And the other one is that people that deny the divinity of the Spirit, which... I'll admit full on right now before we even get too far in, that is me. I do not believe that the Holy Spirit is a God being, but I'm willing to admit that people in my camp also make the mistake of saying that Trinitarian beliefs didn't even exist until 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea. And this just isn't true. Nicaea and the Constantinople councils were meant to settle disputes that already existed regarding the nature of God, Christ, and the Spirit, amongst many other things. So when people say, well, Trinitarianism didn't even come into the church until 325, that's absolutely not true. It's just that it was codified at this point. So these dates are only when the beliefs became official church teachings, not when the ideology itself came about. Because really, all ideologies are progressions of thought. However, having said that, just because the church began to teach this doesn't make it automatically correct. The New Testament, for example, is riddled with things the apostles are trying to steer the church away from teaching. There was this influx of Gnosticism in the, well, there's debate on when it actually started. First through third centuries is generally agreed upon, um, with people mostly saying there were roots of it in the first century and then it took full force in the third. But the apostles are adamantly teaching against some of the things that crept into the church. So just to say that, well, by 325 AD, when they concluded this, that must mean that it was truth. Uh, I, I don't think that bears itself out.
So having said that, we kind of talked a little bit about early church fathers. I kind of want to merge this into the next section about them, because as it often happens in history, we end up only focusing on the highlights or more, more accurately, actually the victors. And occasionally we do look at the ones that are conquered when we feel that they represent us. But typically an actual retelling of history is way more gradual and has a lot more variety of views than just two sides to a conflict that we often hear about. And the same thing happened for Arianism, uh, with Arius being the champion of that. And I guess you'd call it Athanasium, uh, with Athanasius being the leader of that. And these are two schools of thought. Arius came up with the idea, or, or at least... Uh, concluded with the idea that the Father is God, Christ is a created being, and the Holy Spirit is not God. Now, there are things that I disagree with in that. For example, Christ is a created being. That I don't know how he even concluded that because there are so many parts of Scripture that point to Christ's divinity. So I just, I reject that totally. I would not be um, a, a follower of Arius if I were to live at his time. Now, on the other side of the aisle, there was Athanasius who taught that the Father is God, Christ is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Now, this was basically typical Trinitarianism. And this guy was exiled several times as a heretic, but eventually, through relations with other people, or relationships with other people, he eventually came out on top. And so these were the two people that went back and forth on the nature of God, the nature of uh, the Father, Christ, and the Holy Spirit. And they went back and forth on this and then they gained support or they gained uh, disapproval by people. And this is what led to a lot of these councils having to come up, at least the, the Council of Nicaea. What people don't know is that there are other groups within there as well. For example, semi-Arians believed that the Father is God, Christ is God, but that the Holy Spirit was not God. And we don't hear about this grouping of people. Which is strange because you'd think, well, that's a natural option in the lineup of uh, what is possible in this discussion of what or, or what the nature of God is. We never hear about them because they weren't one of the final two battling it out in the Council of Nicaea. And uh, this is this semi-Aryan group is a proto-orthodoxy, which uh, that's kind of a word I had never actually heard before, and it's a word that Bart Ehrman. Uh, kind of coined, and he is a very famous atheist. He is not someone I normally uh, like to quote, but I'm not quoting anything he's teaching. I'm just quoting the definition he puts um, on semi-Arians or anyone who basically wasn't Athanasius or Arius. Anyone that had an idea different from them, he would call proto-orthodoxy. So before the orthodoxy was was set in stone, and. Um, Larry Hurtado, who is a famous New Testament scholar, he believes that a study of these proto-orthodoxy beliefs leads one to understand that while there was a mainstream beginning to form, and that mainstream kind of led um, between the two options of Arianism or Athanasium, which I think Athanasium is a made-up word I'm, I'm creating, but I don't want to just say Arianism and Athanasius, the person, so... But he believes that, yes, while there was a mainstream beginning to form an increase in popularity, many, if not most, of the earliest proto-orthodoxies 
all subscribe to binatarian views. So other groups that we don't hear about, like semi-Aryans, um, basically anything that is not a follower of Arius or Athanasius views, those were mostly binatarian. And that information I found um, on Larry Hurtado's, I think it was a blog post, Lord Jesus Christ, Devotion to Jesus and Earliest Christianity. Uh, published in 2003 and he and he's a famous New Testament scholar so he's not someone who would probably subscribe to the idea of um, anything besides Trinitarianism but he at least recognizes that there were other camps within uh, the argument and that most of them were binatarian or, or types of binatarian at least maybe not in the exact way we would define it today but more closely related to binatarianism than these other two only these two, which ended up coming out um, more vocally, were anything but that. And semi-Arians rejected, like I said before, Arianism in its belief in Christ's divinity, but not in its belief on the Holy Spirit. So they, they accepted that the Holy Spirit was not God, but they rejected the idea that Christ was created. But at the Council of Constantinople in 381 AD, these smaller groups, or these... Um, not even necessarily smaller, less vocal, these proto-Orthodoxy groups were basically rejected from even being considered a part of the church because of their relation to Arianism, because Athanasius came out on top at the Council of Nicaea. And so after Nicaea didn't take care of the problem, um, the leaders of Rome said, okay, well, we can't continue to have this infighting, so these people are just going to be considered not in the church at all. Despite the main point in the debate over Arius and Athanasius not at all being about the divinity of the Holy Spirit or not. Basically, their main, uh, their main argument was over the divinity of Christ. But because these semi-Arians were at all related to Arius and he was rejected from the church, they also became rejected from the church, even though they didn't get a fair shake. So basically what, I, what I'm concluding here is that men deciding things doesn't make things right. And I kind of covered this a second ago. Much of Christianity rejects the idea that these early church councils were responsible for other things like, like canonization. If you talk about canonization, most people will say, yes, it was discussed at early church councils, but it wasn't just that there was no understanding of what scripture was. And then suddenly good thing, these councils came along to canonize the Bible. No one really accepts that. But somehow we accept that they can dictate what, dictate what the nature of God is. Or we reject the idea that Constantine was into Christianity, at least most likely, for any reason other than political consolidation of the empire. But then in this aspect specifically, we accept the conclusion as just bygone truth a lot of the time. And even if we don't realize that that's what we do, historically and culturally, that's what's been perpetuated without a lot of thought, I would say. Not that you can't, um, I would say it's not that people that believe in Trinitarianism aren't studying their Bibles, but because it's a truth that they see affirmed in all forms of Christianity, they never feel the need to look deeper into what those scriptures that they claim prove the Trinity actually say. So essentially, Trinitarianism has been around for a long time, and not just after the Council of Nicaea. That was just when it was codified. However, the belief that Jesus Christ is divine, which most people agree with, the Father is divine, which all branches of understanding of the nature of God pretty much ascribe to, 
and the belief in the Holy Spirit not being divine was wrongly rejected without even a fair trial. They were kind of like the the baby thrown out with the bathwater, so to speak. So I guess I'm going to try and put the baby back in and give it a fair shake. And if the Bible doesn't bear out this truth, then I would like to reject it as well. But I'd also like to give it a fair look rather than just following what is now considered orthodoxy because it was wrongfully thrown out years ago. Like, I don't want to just throw it out because it was thrown out years ago. I'd like to look into it. But you might say, well, Micah, there's so many verses that support the Trinity. Like, how could you just, how could you deny such a fundamental topic to Christianity? There are so many verses that cover this. And I actually really disagree with this. 1 John 5, 7 is probably the number one verse used to prove the Trinity by people. And there are so many debates over this verse in general as to uh, what people think it means or its validity. But let's, let's look at it because 1 John 5, 7 is probably the primary verse used to prove a Trinitarian view. So 1 John 5, 7, and we'll read it in... I was going to say the, the King James Version, but let's go ahead and read it in the uh, New King James Version. I don't know. I just, I just like the New King James a lot. Um, but 1 John 5, 7 for, says, For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. So this is your primary verse for saying that the Trinity is real. However, there is a lot of debate over this verse. At Bible.org, you can find a really great article by Daniel B. Wallace on the textual problem in 1 John 5 uh, verses 7, basically 7 and 8. And I'm just going to read a little bit of what he says because I think it's very valuable. Um, this isn't just an idea that I'm trying to perpetuate. This is actually um, studied and discussed by a number of different people. Um, and this is Daniel B. Wallace who was a teacher of Greek and New Testament courses on a graduate school le uh, level. He, he has a PhD from Dallas Theological Seminary, and he's a professor of New Testament studies at the same college he graduated in. So this is a, a learned person. He's, he's not a lay person like I am. So I, I hope to lend some credibility to um, what I'm saying here. And he says um, in, in his work here on Bible.org, it says... This reading, the infamous Kama Johannem, has been known in the English-speaking world through the King James translation. And this Kama Johannem, it's also referred to as the Johannine Kama. And um, basically, it's, it's the entirety of verse 7. Um, but it says, uh, However, the evidence, both external and internal, is decidedly against its authenticity. And then he goes on to discuss... Um, the external evidence. He says the longer reading is found only in eight late manuscripts, four of which have the words in a marginal note. Most of these manuscripts originate from the 16th century, and the earliest manuscript, Codex 221 from the 10th century, includes the reading in a marginal note, which was added sometime after the original composition. Thus, there is no sure evidence of this reading in any Greek manuscript until the 1500s. Each such reading was apparently composed after Erasmus's Greek New Testament was published in 1516. 
going on just a little bit longer, he says, Indeed, the reading appears in no Greek witness of any kind, either manuscript, patristic, or Greek translation of some other version, until AD 1215, in a Greek translation of the Acts of the Lateran Council, a work originally written in Latin. This is all the more significant, since many a Greek father would have loved such a reading, for it so succinctly affirms the doctrine of the Trinity. So he's saying people would love to see this in an old manuscript because then it might clo more closely affirm the doctrine of the Trinity, but it doesn't, it doesn't find its way into any Greek manuscripts before the 15th century. And for those of you that don't know Erasmus, he was basically a translator um, and he, he's very famous specifically for this Johannine comma or comma Johannum. Um, and basically he included it according to many people, but including, uh, this author here, he included it because he was pressured to by the Catholic church. So, um, Mr. Wallace says the Trinitarian formula known as the comma Johannum made its way into the third edition of Erasmus's Greek new Testament because of pressure from the Catholic church. After his first edition appeared in 1516, there arose such a furor over the absence of the comma that Erasmus needed to defend himself. He argued that he did not put in the comma because he found no Greek manuscripts that included it, which that makes sense, right? If you don't find any manuscripts that include it, why would you then include it? But once what one was produced, which is called Codex 61, and it was written by either Roy or Froy at Oxford in 1520, Erasmus apparently felt obliged to include the reading. So basically, this man who is uh, translating the the New Testament, he said, I'm not going to include this because it's found in no original Greek manuscript or no none of the early Greek manuscripts at all. And then the Catholic Church said, well, no, you have to include this. They were, they were upset because they preached the doctrine of the Trinity. Well, then they came to him with a Greek manuscript from 1520, which was even within his lifetime. And because he had said he would include it if it were found in a Greek manuscript, he put it back in, probably to avoid more of that pressure. So I don't know that we can look at this and say, well, um, the whole verse is, is meant to be in the Bible when it was added so, so late. Now, some people do say, well, I believe that the translation itself is inspired by God and he added it in later through the translators, or I wouldn't even call it translators because they just added it in. But if you want to say this, then you have to go look through a number of textual, um, basically copy mistakes and say that he inspired those too. Otherwise you're just picking and choosing. There's one that I find particularly funny in first Thessalonians two, verse seven through 12, Paul says in there, but we were gentle among you talking to the Thessalonians. Well, one Greek manuscript has that saying we were horses among you because the Greek word for horses is very close to the Greek word for gentle. So if you want to say that God inspires, um, translation as well, which again, first John five, seven is not a translation, but an addition then you have to say, well, what did Paul mean when he said that they were hor uh, he was horses among the Thessalonians? That just, it doesn't really seem to fit. And I'm sorry if this is so difficult to hear. I, I totally understand that. If you have grown up understanding the Bible to be whole and intact, and I believe that, that mostly it is, but if you believe that everything in it is inspired by God, and then here I am telling you that this verse doesn't even belong, I can sound like a heretic to you. I totally understand that. But my intent 
is is well intended. I really I really do want to just say true things here, and I would say that something added to the Bible as late as the 1500s probably should be looked into a little bit further to see if it should be um, included in the text. Because if that's your main verse for proving the doctrine of the Trinity, and there is so much question surrounding that verse, I would say, okay, well, you at least have to have other verses that support it besides just that. Because even the fact that there's question to that should um, be making you look other places for your doctrine. If your doctrine hangs on one verse in particular, where most of scripture is line upon line, precept upon precept, that already feels pretty shaky to me. So ask yourself then the question, is something added to the Bible as late as the 1500s? Is that inspired text from God? Or is that an addition that we should question and even possibly throw out? And a lot of modern Bibles now, this again, this is not just me saying this, a lot of modern Bibles either have a very clear footnote showing that this is a spurious text, or they just take it out altogether. And a while ago, some translations tried to take it out and were actually persecuted and then added it back in, a lot like Erasmus. Um, one one more comment just on um, on this verse. Even as late as the 1500s, there were only five Bibles that included the verse, and they included it in parentheses, including Luther's Bible translation. So it also wasn't it, it wasn't even in Erasmus's original two works that would later become the Textus Receptus. It was only in some of his later editions. So that, I think that needs said as well. But the icing on the cake for me with this verse specifically is that it's actually been removed from most Bibles published by Trinitarian Bible societies. This is very telling. It is not found in any Greek manuscripts until the late, late 14th century. And so most people have either rejected it or um, put footnotes in that say, well, there's questions as to this verse, or they put footnotes that say, this text is completely spurious. So I don't know if, if your whole doctrine hangs on this, maybe it's time to strengthen it because this one might not be as sure-footed as you once thought. Another verse that people go to, I spent already too much time probably on that one, but it's very important because I've been pointed to that verse so many times by friends who are Trinitarian, and I just, I cannot um, emphasize enough how this probably isn't something to hang your hat on. So the other verse, the next verse I want to go to is Matthew 28, verse 19, and this is the verse that says that um, Christ is telling the disciples to go forth and to baptize into the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, here, I'd like to focus on the topic of what is being spoken of by Christ. Is Christ trying to outline the nature of God in this topic, or is he talking about baptism or the process of baptism? I, I mean, it's pretty clear he's talking about the process of baptism. And in the process of baptism, all three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are involved in the process. So it's natural to include all three. But we should let the Bible interpret the Bible rather than saying, see, Christ put all three in one sentence, and so it must be the nature of God. Because that's just not what he's teaching in this moment. So through baptism and receiving of the Holy Spirit, we enter into a familial relationship with God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son, or our brother. And we do this 
through the Spirit. But this verse doesn't actually do anything to point to the Spirit being an individual member of the God family. In fact, other verses actually point to this not being the case at all. It's not even that you could say, well, this verse is... Um, Maybe, maybe you want to say that this verse is vague on the topic and it could include it or it could not. I would still say that's not what is being taught here. But if you want to make that case and say uh, the Holy Spirit could still be a being within the God family, I would point you to Ephesians 3 verse 14 and 15. It says, For this cause I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. I don't know how, how much clearer to make it. Um, the Holy Spirit is not part of that family of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. It, it just is completely missing from this part of scripture. And I think if the Holy Spirit were a being in the God family, when it's talking in the Bible about who God is and the family in heaven and earth and by who they're named, I would think the Holy Spirit would be a big part of that. Additionally, in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, it says, By one Spirit we are baptized. So this is, again, talking about baptism, not about the nature of God or the nature of the Spirit, but by one Spirit we are baptized. So, as I said before, in Christ's teaching on how to baptize, he says, Baptize them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And it makes sense that he would mention both beings and the Holy Spirit, because all are involved. We get baptized into the family of God through the Holy Spirit. Now, that those are just two verses, but there's also so many other things that point to this conclusion that the Holy Spirit isn't included in the God family. For example, Paul omits the Holy Spirit at the greetings of all of his letters. It's not that he doesn't ever speak about the Holy Spirit. He definitely does. But he never, when he addresses a congregation or a church, he never says, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, as well as the will of the Holy Spirit. Instead, you have Paul in Romans saying, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, completely omitting the Holy Spirit there. And then you can move on to 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians, says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, so that's who's with him there, omitting um, the Holy Spirit again. Uh, 2 Corinthians, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God with Timothy, our brother. No Holy Spirit mentioned in that one. Uh, Galatians, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. So no mention of the Holy Spirit there. Ephesians 1 verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Why not grace and peace from the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit if all three are God? It doesn't make sense or seems like a really, really um, costly omission to totally disregard the Holy Spirit if in fact the Holy Spirit is a member of that God family, which again, I don't see being spoken of in scripture. So continuing on, um, that's Paul's omission of the Holy Spirit in the greeting of his letters. I don't think, however, that this proves the Holy Spirit is not God. I would just say 
it's very singular. It's very interesting. If the Holy Spirit were God, then Paul, who was very learned in his scriptures, a very knowledgeable, wise man, would probably have included the Spirit in there. You also have the fact that the Holy Spirit is often objectified, described as a gift or having power that raised Christ and conceived Christ in the, in the womb. Uh, that's in Romans 8, 9. It's described as a seal and it's described as the means by which Christ lives in us. So I don't know why you would objectify God in this way as being just something you're given. You're not given God. You are given things. You are not given God. And also, why would the Spirit be the means by which Christ lives in us if the Holy Spirit is its own being, its own God? It would be the, the means by which the Holy Spirit lives in us. It would be, um, I guess, self-evident that it is its own reason for being in us. But for it to be the catalyst in which Christ lives in us doesn't, to me, point to the fact that it is, in fact, God. Lastly, I'd, I'd like to cover the fact that he, she, and it are Greek pronouns that in Greek are neuter. Often in our translations of these things, uh, be, and I, I bring this up because a lot of the times when it talks about the Holy Spirit, it says he. So you might be reading through your scripture and say, well, obviously the Holy, Holy Spirit is a being because it calls it a he. But these Greek pronouns are neuter unless it is very clear by context that you can call it a he or a she. Um, on ibiblio.org, New Testament Greek 101, on the subject pronouns, subjects, objects, and owners. This is a website to understand Greek in the New Testament. It says, once again, the terms he, she, and it are misleading. In Greek, a girl or a mother-in-law are neuter, not because they are not female, but because that happens to be the gender of the nouns used to describe them. It is always worth remembering that it can often be the best translation of a masculine or feminine pronoun. So unless the evidence is overwhelming for saying that the Holy Spirit is a he, then he or she are misleading and it is a much better translation of the pronouns used in relation to the Holy Spirit. So anytime you see the Holy Spirit talked about and it says he, that should actually be translated as it. And it was added as he to promote the doctrine that the Holy Spirit was God. That, that addition to the translation came much later. That is not in the original Greek. Um, that's not how it would read in the original Greek anyways. Uh, let's turn to some scripture now. John 16 verse 13. John 16 verse 13 says, However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, although we need to read it as it, um, as what we just read would support. So let's read this um, as you read along with me. Replace all the he's with it. So John 16, 13, However, when it, the spirit of truth, has come, it will guide you into all truth, for it will not speak on, it, on its own authority, but whatever it hears, it will speak, and it will tell you things to come. It will glorify me, for it will take what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that it will take of mine and declare it to you. And it's interesting to me, especially in this verse, I don't, I don't read this just to say, well, see, here's how a verse might read with it instead of he. 
Instead, I think this verse is very interesting because why does the Holy Spirit not speak of its own authority or will? If it were a God being, would it not have its own authority to speak as God? This goes back to the fact that the Holy Spirit is the catalyst by which Christ can live through us or in us. It's the same, it's the same kind of argument. Why, if, if Christ is living in us through the Spirit, why not just say the Spirit is living in us as its own being? Or if the Spirit is speaking to us, why does Christ make the point that it will not speak of its own will? but that Christ is speaking to us through that spirit. That's very confusing. I, I think on the doctrine of the Trinity, this is something that has to be reconciled. These are questions that have to be asked if you want to maintain this belief. So what does the Bible say then? I know I've led you through all of this and it can be very frustrating. I, I hope that you um, are listening, like I said earlier, with patience and with grace to what I have to say today. It can't be an easy thing to hear if you've believed forever and ever for your whole life that the doctrine of the Trinity is true. This cannot be an easy thing to swallow. And you've been made to think that disbelieving in this is heresy or disbelieving in this makes you not a Christian. But typically what I've found is when people preach the doctrine of the Trinity, the thing they're most often trying to prove is the divinity of Christ. So I've not actually had much problem um, speaking on my beliefs on this, because when I say I reject the idea of the Trinity, I am not claiming that I reject the idea that Jesus Christ is God. I am only rejecting the fact that the Holy Spirit is God or is a being in general. And that I think people are, if they don't understand better, they're at least more confused by rather than enraged by. So, um, I hope this doesn't make you angry, but that you're taking it with, um, a gentle spirit and an understanding spirit trying to uh, hear my words and ask yourselves appropriate questions rather than just being angry or defensive because I do understand how you could feel like this is an affront to you. It is not meant to be at all. It is not meant to be slanderous or um, provoking. If anything, it may be thought provoking, but not provoking to anger or bitterness or anything like that. I'm not attempting to speak heresy. I'm just trying to look at what the Bible says on something rather than taking um, historical conclusions by men who we already understand to be flawed and then reading that into scripture itself. And I think all of us have that responsibility to do that, whether you reach the same conclusion I do or not. So let's keep going. Um, obviously when, when we talk about what the Bible does say about the Holy Spirit, things of God are difficult to comprehend. This is why there's so much variety of understanding on this because you have early church fathers and you have modern day teaching and you have, um, what the Bible says and you have what the, basically the Bible is all kinds of different writings from different people. The old Testament, um, doesn't have a lot of text that we would go to to um, understand the nature of God. It does have some for sure. I, I don't want to exclude the Old Testament. And I do think it does point to the divinity of Christ very well. But as far as the Holy Spirit goes, we get a lot of our understanding from the teaching in the New Testament, but we still have to take the whole Bible together. And so there's a lot to look into and it, it's difficult to comprehend. Spiritual things are difficult to comprehend for physical people. The things of God are not the things of man. So it makes sense that there would be um, confusion or frustration when trying to 
kind of humanize these lofty ideas as far as um, what is the nature of God or what is the nature of the Holy Spirit. The closest I think we can come is by looking at the physical copies of things that God provides for us. So there are physical copies on earth of things in heaven, and there are um, physical examples of things that God gives to us, um, physical commands God gives to us to illustrate spiritual points. God works with us in the physical so that we can try and understand spiritual. So then we can think within ourselves. It, it's it's like, yes, this is a type of something, um, and it's like that, but it's also beyond that. And And when we kind of understand that, uh, it helps a little bit. Like we think of eternity. We can't really conceptualize eternity forever in the past, forever in the future. That's hard to understand. Forever in the future is a little bit easier because we think, well, you like a day before you die and then you live one more day and then you live one more day. It's like this, but it's beyond that. that that's the best example I can come up with as far as something spiritual that we try to understand but can't quite do. But there's physical examples that we can look to that at least help. So 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9, I'd love if you'd turn there with me. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 9, this is a bit of a long scripture, but I think it's important to read. It says, but as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. And people often stop here. I think that's very interesting because then it tells us that those things are revealed to us through his spirit. But people stop there and say, wow, we just can't possibly comprehend anything ever. And it's, yes, that's true in some sense, but it also says in verse 10, but God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For this, and this is verse 11 here, is where I think the connection for us to understand the spirit of God um, is compared with something physical so we can try and understand it. Verse 11, for what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. So it's saying, what knows the things that are in your mind except for the mind or the spirit that's inside of you right now? Unless you speak them. So by, by giving us his spirit, God allows us to better understand the things of the spirit. Continuing on in verse 12, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. And that who there is also translated um, that or which. So, but the spirit which is from God or the spirit that is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. And when it says Holy Spirit teaches, we already showed in a previous verse that it is Christ speaking to us through that same spirit. Verse 14, but the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So we have been given this mind of Christ for Christ to speak through us and to teach us the spiritual things so that we can understand them once we receive that Holy Spirit upon baptism and the laying on of hands. And this word here for spirit, when it's uh, said about God 
and man, the word is the exact same, and that is pneuma. That's the word for spirit. And it's the same word that's used when discussing, um, even if you just have the phrase, the Holy Spirit, it is still pneuma. So it's not like a man has um, a spirit in him and it is something totally different. Now it is different just because one is the spirit of man and one is the spirit of God, but they are both spirit. And so is our, when we think of our spirit, because again, we're comparing the physical or, or the things we can understand with the things of God. So we can only dis describe it to a certain degree. We can only understand it to a certain degree, but look at us for a second. Is our spirit a separate being from us? We would say absolutely not. There's not me, Micah, and then a different me that is the spirit. There's not two beings within me. The spirit is us. So why then would we assume that God's spirit is separate from him or different from him or individual from him? Our spirit kind of makes us who we are. It is our, our self in a way. And God's spirit is, is his self in that same kind of way. Now we do have a body that contains that spirit in man and God has no physical body. He is spirit. John four verse 24 says, God is spirit. It, it doesn't say the spirit is God. It does not say the Holy spirit is God. It says God is spirit and we worship him in spirit and truth. That's John four verse 24. And in James 2, 27, it says, just as the body without the spirit or pneuma is dead, so are works dead without faith. So the spirit is in kind of a sense, it is our, our essence or it's how we work, how we communicate, think, etc. It's not to be confused with the other word for spirit, which is suke, and that is breath or life or soul. That's, that's a different thing altogether. That's just kind of more your general life. Your spirit is your yourself, your identity, the thing that makes you you. And God has no body, like I said, to contain the spirit of God because he is the spirit of God. So God is the spirit, but the Holy Spirit is not God. And why is this important? Why does this even matter? Why did I take the time to do this today? It is incredibly important. It is important to the absolute utmost, not just because um, we hope to have a better understanding of who and what God is, but also for our future. The doctrine of the Trinity is a three-person God, a three-in-one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and it is a closed system. I believe fully if we remove the idea that the Holy Spirit is God or is a being within the Godhead, it opens up the possibility for God's plan to bring many sons to glory, to bring many sons into his God family with a closed system of three. There is no room for us to be part of his family. And it talks over and over and over again about God wanting a family. God made himself the father. God allowed himself to be emptied of his divinity to become the son as Jesus Christ. And God is calling us as his children right now. The only way that this can work is if the closed system of the Trinity is not true. And I don't conclude this because I want it to be true. Instead, I'm concluding this because the Bible shows that this is true. And I am so glad for the opportunity that it presents to you and to me 
as we go forward in this life and into the next one. I really appreciate you guys listening. I know this was um, another pretty long episode. In the future weeks, I'm probably going to do um, a couple of shorter episodes instead. I know um, for a lot of people, these longer ones are more interesting and you do them as you're working, you listen through, but some people like some shorter ones as well. So I'm going to try and get some variety in, um, but I do appreciate you listening and uh, bearing with me on this this difficult topic. I've spent months and months researching what I thought was um, something that felt like common sense to me, but was something I really had a lot to study into. And I hope that you go through, through the study with me and um, find value in it and can study your own Bibles and look into what I have to say today and ask yourself the important questions and think critically about what the Bible says to kind of shake off our presuppositions or our understandings of history and how truth has kind of morphed and instead just take the Bible and allow it to translate itself so that we can have a closer and closer understanding of the truth that God wanted us to have about himself, about the Son, and about the Holy Spirit, and the great, great future that that allows for us to have by joining his family for eternity. Thank you all so much for listening with me. If you have any questions at all, I do have an email at truthbetoldbiblepodcast at gmail.com. You can reach me there. I'd be happy to answer any questions or have a discussion with you. Maybe you could give me some ideas to talk about in the future. I'd really appreciate that as well. So thanks again to everybody. And until next time, I would encourage you to keep on thinking critically about the Bible. Thanks very much.